Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us at River Oaks. Great to have you with us here. Welcome also to those of you joining us online, and thank you to Pilar Flynn for that reading in Spanish of our passage this morning. Before we get into the scripture today, I'd like to take just a moment to share with you from the very first paragraph of our Vision 2025. You'll see it on the screen. Our Vision 2025 begins with these words. In the year 2025, River Oaks is known as a church where people have a strong knowledge of the Bible joined with active compassion for those outside the church. Its mission of building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others has shaped the church's ministry of spiritual formation for all ages. Children, students, and adults have a growing knowledge of Scripture that's being formed by active involvement in worship services, small groups, and classes. A distinctive culture of disciple-making is shaping both the church and individual households with a passion to invest in the spiritual growth of others, particularly the next generation. So at the heart of our vision is this mission, this calling, we believe, to build followers of Jesus who, who are sent into the, into the world to reach others, to reach those outside of our church, that is, outside of faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to share with you that not all reaching occurs outside the walls of the church. Much of that reaching of people outside of the faith occurs within the walls of the church. In Noah's Ark, Kids Rock, worship services at youth, things like our summer block party here. But I want to share with you something I'm really excited about, and you, you probably haven't heard about that yet. And it has to do with a special outreach to students on Tuesday afternoons in our coffee bar, particularly students from West Forsyth who park in our parking lot and uh, go to school right next door. Um, our student ministry began this open coffee bar using some uh, interns from Young Life uh, who've done a great job making coffee drinks and smoothies for students on Tuesday afternoons. And uh, you can scroll through those other pictures if you would. And I just thought you all would enjoy knowing that our building is being used in that way um, with dozens of students coming by after school um, and getting acquainted here with our church and getting a, a free coffee drink or smoothie. There's no charge for anything. They have the opportunity if they want to donate something, that donation goes to a local ministry. I think it's Clemens Food Pantry right now. I want to let you know about that. I'm really excited about what's happening among our students and their zeal for the Lord, their desire to reach their friends. And I also want to say thank you because it's your giving to our church that enables us to do things like this missions, ministry, reaching people within the walls of the church and beyond the walls of the church. Thank you so very much for your giving that enables us to do that. Well, today we're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 13, uh, the passage that Pilar read for us just a moment ago. Jesus is beginning to say in this part of the Gospel of Luke some very strong and sobering things. You know, our world likes a lot of things about Jesus. Our culture likes that Jesus talked a lot about love, that he was merciful, that he was compassionate. Our culture likes that he was at odds with many in the religious hierarchy. Our world does not like so much, I think, the word repent. 
And Jesus used it quite a lot. In fact, when Jesus began his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew says Jesus began to preach saying, repent <clears throat> for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if we read carefully through the New Testament, through the Gospels in particular, we find Jesus not only preaching repentance, but John the Baptist. Later we find the Apostle Peter preaching repent, and the Apostle Paul preaching repent and believe the gospel. Jesus calls all people to repent, as we see at the very beginning of this passage in Luke chapter 13. Some people had come to Jesus and told him about something they thought was just horrible. Pontius Pilate had mingled the blood of some Galilean uh, Jews with the sacrifices that were being offered. And um, Jesus replies in a most interesting way to those who told him, you think they were worse than all other sinners because that happened to him? I tell you, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Jesus went on to say, are the 18 people on whom that tower fell in Siloam, a well-known tragedy in his time, do you think they were worse sinners because that happened to them? Jesus said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Strong words from Jesus, sobering words. Now, as the chapter goes on, Jesus is making his way through towns and villages, uh, teaching, traveling toward Jerusalem, and someone asks Christ a question. And the question is this, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? Will there just be a few people in the final analysis who are really, really saved? Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, but he begins a teaching. And in the teaching, he uses this image of a, of a banquet, someone giving a large banquet. And he begins teaching that there is a narrow door into this banquet or into this celebration. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I'll tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. And again, he's, he's answering or responding to rather this question from someone, will those who are saved be few? He doesn't say yes or no. He just says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I'll tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Jesus had talked like this previously in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Strive to enter by the narrow door. So in responding to this question about whether many or few people will be ultimately saved, he simply says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Not only that, but Jesus goes on to teach that there is a limited time to enter through this narrow door. And here he uses this image of a, a master of a house, owner of a house, giving a large banquet inviting people to come to this feast at the home. And he says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door 
and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Again, it's the image of a banquet. This, this household uh, master owner has invited all these people to come to the banquet, but Jesus is saying the door will not always be open. This narrow way, this door will not always be open. He seems to be saying that in terms of, of a person coming to faith, entering the kingdom of God, coming through this narrow way, becoming saved, that is, that the door is open, but it will not always be open. That is, there is not a second chance after a person dies. That's what I think he's saying. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Jesus will tell an equally sobering story in Luke chapter 16 about a, a rich man and Lazarus. And each of them die in Jesus' account. And the rich man is consigned to, to Hades, to hell. And he'd like to get out. But he cannot. It's a very sobering message from Jesus implying that there is a time when this narrow way, this door will be closed. And then perhaps most sobering of all, Jesus teaches that there will be many who expect to enter but will be turned away. Jesus says, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves cast out. And remember, Jesus is responding to this question. Lord, there are, are there few who will be saved? And he's setting it up with this image of a banquet. There's a narrow way, there's a limited time, and there will be many who expect to enter but will be turned away. In fact, Jesus had previously said, many, I tell you, will seek to, to enter and not be able. Those turned away seem to have been surprised for, for two reasons. Number one, they had counted on the fact that they had some acquaintance with Jesus. Lord, we ain't drinking your presence. Uh, you, you taught in our streets. Uh, we knew who you were. We believed who you were. We went to church from time to time. We heard about you. We went to church on Christmas Eve. We, we had good thoughts of who you are, Jesus. But a mere acquaintance, a mere intellectual knowledge of who he is was not enough. Others were counting on their heritage. In that place, you'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves cast out. Jesus may have been directing this toward those who were trusting in their Jewish heritage, like those who said, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father, so we should be in. Someone once wisely said, however, that God has no grandchildren. You don't get born again into the kingdom of God just because your parents or your grandparents were believers. 
Many times in life when I've talked to people about faith and they've heard that I was a, a pastor, they'll say, oh, my dad was a, a, a pastor, my granddad, as if that somehow brings them into the faith. We've each got to make our own commitment of faith to embrace and receive what Jesus has done. Now, Jesus is talking about this narrow way into the kingdom. And... Um, I think it, it, it's now important for us to raise the question, what exactly is that narrow door? What's the narrow way that Jesus is talking about? Because it's not fully explained to us in this passage. Jesus has talked about repentance. And while repentance is important and necessary, repentance itself is not the door. Have you ever traveled down Interstate 40 and seen one of the billboards that just says, repent, exclamation point. You've seen those? I've seen those travel around uh, up through the mountains, different areas. And I know the people that put them up are well-intentioned. And as Jesus says, we all do need to repent. But the word repent, without the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not good news. It's a little part of the message, but it's not the whole message. Repentance itself is not the gospel. Repentance and faith in Jesus is the gospel. So what is the narrow door? Repentance for sin and saving faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, the grace of our repentance is met by the grace of God. And our sins are removed. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus, if we want to make it as simple as possible, saying who's, what's the narrow door, it's rather who's the narrow door. It's Jesus. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through Jesus. Yet Jesus, when telling us how to present the message of his salvation, includes the call to explain what it means to repent. And therefore, he tells his disciples in Luke 24, before he ascends into heaven, he says, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then this is the message he gives us to preach. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. His name is representative of who he is and what he has done. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. This is what the apostle Peter preached, as we see in the next verse, Acts 2 and verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance for sin and saving faith in Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul preached, describing his ministry this way. He went about testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. As I think about these things, I realize that sometimes I've talked a lot about Jesus and what he's done in saving us, perhaps not enough about the need to repent as we come to faith in him. 
what exactly does it mean to repent? Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How would we define the word repent? Well, uh, biblical word expert William Mounts, a scholar of biblical language, says repentance denotes a radical turning. And I think that's, that's the key part of the word repent, to turn. A radical turning from sin to a new way of life oriented towards God. I was noticing this week the Old Testament, uh, the, the Hebrew word for repent, sometimes translated repent as the word shuv, which simply means to turn, to turn. So at the heart of this word repentance is a turning, a turning from sin and a turning to God. We learn more about repentance when we see how it's spoken of in the New Testament. And we see that repentance... Genuine repentance should be accompanied by fruit. John the Baptist was known for preaching repentance. In Luke chapter 3, John says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't just depend on your, your, your heritage because your parent was a believer if you're, you're Jewish because uh, you call Abraham your father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What did the Apostle Paul say about repentance and fruit? When he was speaking to King Agrippa, he recounts the, the vision he had from God to preach and to preach this way, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So genuine repentance is accompanied by, by fruit, deeds that are in keeping with repentance. Now, having said that, repentance, a turning, a turning from sin, a turning to, in faith to Jesus Christ, fruit should result, some life change should result, and while repentance is, I think, a necessary part of our salvation, it's also a continuing spiritual discipline for believers. We only repent and enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ and are born again once, at least in my opinion and understanding. We don't become saved and when we sin, lost, and then get saved again, and if we sin, get lost again. And then repent and get saved. No. I think when we come to God through faith in Jesus, we're united by the Holy Spirit to him. The Bible says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. However, every one of us who is a Christian know that we do continue to stumble and sin. I know I do. And that requires repentance, confession of sin. And that's why John, writing to believers... And 1 John chapter 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We who are believers have this opportunity 
to walk in continued cleansing because the blood of Jesus was shed for us and it has been applied to our lives and we appeal to the blood of Christ through faith in Jesus for continued cleansing of sin. Now, while repentance is necessary in entering the kingdom of God and it's an ongoing uh, spiritual discipline, I'd call it, for believers, confession of sin at least, there is, and I think if we're honest, we've probably all experienced a bit of this, there is such a thing as insincere repentance, insincere repentance. I've been guilty of this. Maybe you have too. That's where we say to God, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry. But in our heart of hearts, we really know we're probably going to be coming back tomorrow saying the same thing. Because in my heart of hearts, I'm really not ready. I'm really not willing to turn. It's an insincere repentance. Repentance at its very heart is a, is a turning away and a turning to God. We often say we're sorry just to, to make ourselves feel better. Have you ever done this? We say we're sorry, but we make excuses for our sin. Have you ever read the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, and notice when Adam and Eve sin in, in, in chapter 3, this is the, the initial human response. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat? And you know what the first thing Adam says is, the woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. It's the immediate human response is to excuse sin. The woman you gave me, gave me that fruit. And then God goes to Eve and she says, the serpent beguiled me. The serpent deceived me. Excuse making. Yeah, I did this, but here's why I did it. And then finally, we say we're sorry only because our sin came to light. Now, have you noticed that in our world Actors, actresses, politicians, athletes, some, some sin comes to light, something gets exposed, they get found out, and then there's some public comment made like this one from the Associated Press. This was a, I won't give you the name or even the sport, a very well-known and very wealthy uh, athlete um, came home really drunk and um, became abusive to his wife. She called 911, et cetera. And so all got out into the news and this famous person um, made this public statement. There was an incident that took place on Saturday and it is a personal matter. I am sorry this has become a distraction and I apologize to my teammates and all the fans. I would appreciate it if you would respect my family's privacy as I prepare for our next game. I'm sorry it's become a distraction. In other words, I'm sorry this got into the news and it's distract distracting our team. I apologize to my fans and teammates that it's become a distraction. All these things we see around us, I think, are, are not biblical, genuine repentance. What then would be sincere repentance? 
Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So it's important to understand. I think the Bible gives us uh, the best example of uh, true, genuine, contrite, heartfelt repentance in Psalm 51 that we could ever find. Psalm 51 is the expression of David's repentance after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet concerning his adultery with Bathsheba and his arranged killing of her husband Uriah. Now it's worth noting this doesn't happen until Nathan the prophet confronts David very, very boldly sometime after the sin. And David, to his credit, does humble himself and say, I have sinned against the Lord. And then David gives us Psalm 51. The Lord gives us Psalm 51 because David's repentance was genuine. We learn this about sincere repentance from Psalm 51. First of all, sincere repentance comes when we humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that our sin has been against him and it dishonors him. Now, it may have dishonored and hurt other people as well, certainly. But ultimately, it's against him. So David begins Psalm 51 with these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That is honesty about sin. David later says in the psalm, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, the type of sacrifice God wants is this, contriteness, humility, brokenness, genuineness, honesty. Sincere repentance. We humble ourselves before God acknowledge that our sin has been against him. Secondly, sincere repentance. We rest on the provision of Jesus for our sin and we accept his cleansing by faith. The word repent becomes a beautiful word when we realize that it is met in the gospel by the grace of Jesus Christ for us. David, of course, doesn't mention Jesus. David, in Psalm 51, lived approximately a thousand years before Christ. But he says something interesting in verse 7. After his sincere confession of sin to the Lord and, and saying, Against you, you only have I sinned, and none of what is evil in your sight. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Why is that significant? Hyssop was a, a, a type of plant, brushy type of plant. I think of it kind of like a, a sponge, perhaps. And in the Old Testament book of Exodus, Moses told the Israelites to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in a lamb's blood and apply it to the doorposts and the lintel of their, their house 
so that when the angel of death came by, that angel would pass over their homes, seeing the blood applied. That's where we get the, the term Passover. That's what the Passover celebration was all about, that the angel of death passing over. The teaching of the New Testament is that the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to our sins, that he is the propitiation for our sins. We've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And the Apostle Paul can say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. The whole feast of the Passover, the recollection of what was done, it was pointing to something greater as do many of the sacrifices and, and images of the Old Testament. They point to Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ. And I think David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, speaking by the Holy Spirit here, is, is being used to bring this point out that there is a cleansing that comes from God a cleansing that despite the horror of sin, and in David's case, that included adultery and murder. By God's cleansing, I'm clean. Cleaner than snow, whiter than snow. As John would later write, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Our, our, our cleansing doesn't come from our faithfulness. It comes from his. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus is so fully adequate as to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in sincere repentance, the kind that leads to the narrow way, the kind that leads into the kingdom of God, the kind by which we're saved, we repent and we rest. We rest on the provision of Jesus for our sin and we accept his cleansing by faith. But that is not all. Thirdly, in sincere repentance, <clears throat> we seek the grace of the gospel to diminish our desire to continue in sin. Sometimes we repent, we wonder, Lord, I'm repenting, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to fall back into that sin. I can't avoid that sin in my own power, in my own strength. I need your help. When we understand the gospel, we begin to realize there is power, there is grace in the gospel to actually diminish, decrease the desire to continue in sin. I think that's one reason in Psalm 51, David writes, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He has sinned. He's been broken, he's been contrite, he has grieved his sin, he has now confessed it, he has appealed to God for the application of the hyssop and the cleansing of his sin, and he now wants the restoration of the joy of salvation and a willing spirit. And I take that to mean a spirit willing to do God's will. So we turn, we repent, we rely on the grace of the gospel but we also rely on God to make us willing to do his will. So, if understood in connection with the gospel, when you see the word repent on a billboard, 
realize more needs to be said in order to reach somebody than just repent. They need the whole gospel. But for a believer, for those of us who are believers, the word repent is a most beautiful word because it means there is a way. There is a way that has been opened to us, for us, by the blood of Jesus to turn from who we are and what we were and to come in the grace of Christ and to have complete cleansing of our sin. And as a believer, if I stumble and fall, as I have done hundreds of times since becoming a believer, I know I can confess my sins and that he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Repentance then becomes a beautiful word and not a bad word. It's a hope-filled word if we understand the gospel. So, as we reflect on this, a couple of questions by way of personal application. Number one, have I truly entered God's kingdom through sincere repentance and faith in Jesus? Remember, Jesus said many will come on that day saying, Lord, we did this, we did that, and he'll say, I never knew you. Many will seek to enter and will not be able, he warned. Sincere repentance and faith in Jesus is not merely intellectual belief that Christ existed. It's not mere intellectual assent. It's not mere acquaintance with who Jesus was. It's not resting on our heritage or the fact that our parents or grandparents were Christians or that we even grew up in a church. It's entering the kingdom of God through sincere repentance and faith in Jesus. And then secondly, for us believers, is ongoing repentance, confession of sin, and trust in the gospel helping me to live an increasingly holy life. There is power in the gospel, the more fully we understand it, to diminish the desire to continue in that sin and to walk in a life in which we, as Paul said, perform deeds in keeping with repentance and bring forth fruits of repentance. Let's pray about that today, shall we? Father, we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, these are some, some hard things. Uh, for you said some challenging things, Lord Jesus. We certainly want to get them right. Lord, if I have taught any of this wrongly, I ask that you would overrule it in the lives of your people and give us right understanding. But Lord, we know the day will come when you either return or we stand before you at the end of our lives and we want to be prepared to be welcomed with the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Lord, I pray that no one here, no one watching online, no single person among us would be turned away because we failed to enter through the door of Christ Jesus. Lord, give us right understanding and call us and enable us and empower us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live increasingly holy lives that are pleasing to you and honoring to you. And we ask this now 
in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.